You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode of Aspen Ideas To Go, author Michael Lewis speaks at Aspen Words, a literary program of the Institute that hosts the world's most prominent contemporary authors. Lewis has written many books on various subjects, all but one of which have been New York Times bestsellers. His most recent works, Flash Boys, The Big Short, and Boomerang, all examine aspects of the global financial crisis. The paperback version of Flash Boys, his best-selling expose of high-speed trading that rocked Wall Street, comes out today, March 23rd. Lewis joined Aspen Words board president Tom Bernard on stage earlier this month to talk about Flash Boys. The two share a long and congenial history that dates back to the 1980s and their days as bond salesmen at Solomon Brothers. Lewis later chronicled his time at the investment bank in his semi-autobiographical debut book, Liar's Poker, in which a larger-than-life character, dubbed the human piranha, is based on Bernard. Here's Michael Lewis and Tom Bernard. Let's talk about Flash Boys. I think Flash Boys was your most ambitious book because explaining something as arcane as high-frequency trading and entertaining uh, while you're doing it had to be the ultimate challenge. Um, But for people who haven't yet read the book, uh, will you give us a synopsis? Sure. Um, And high-frequency, oddly, I didn't think of myself as writing, I don't think I wrote a book about high-frequency trading. I wrote a book about a, a Canadian a decent, like, middle-class Canadian guy who gets shipped to Wall Street and, and can't believe how bad it is. Um, like, it so violates his internal sense of Canadianness that he, has, <laughs> that he has a nervous breakdown. And he happens to be, he happens to have been in charge of the Royal Bank of Canada's stock market desk, so he was in the American stock market, but if he had been in charge of the Royal Bank of Canada's I don't know, mortgage bond desk, he probably would have had the same breakdown there. Uh, but he, he, he thought, so my book is about a, what happens when a, a good man walks onto Wall Street, and, uh, and, who, and he gathers around him other good men, and it's the story of these guys trying to figure out something that went wrong in the stock market circa 2008. And uh, it's, it's a story of really smart, really decent people first figuring out how the stock market works and second, trying to fix it. Really simple story. Now, the high-frequency trading comes in when you go about understanding how the stock market works. You have to understand high-frequency trading. But it was, it, I think it was the most ambitious book I've ever written because... It was handicapped every which way. The big short, had I had to explain equally complicated things, but I had these outrageous characters. The, these guys who had figured out, really a, a, a collection of oddballs, who had figured out that the subprime mortgage uh, uh, boom was a catastrophe. And, and the fact that they had figured it out was interesting. And they could teach the reader about it, but they themselves were such great characters. My main character in Flash Boys is Brad Katsuyama, um, who, I mean, I realized when I was working on this thing that when I, back when I was, a, I worked at the New Republic for a few years. And when I worked at the New Republic, um, we used to have a boring headline competition. 
And every week, we'd invite readers to submit the most boring newspaper headline in America. It's from local papers, from national papers. And at the end of the week, we'd take them all and we'd print the one we thought that was the most boring and give, and give kudos to the reader who sent it in. At the end of the first year, we took all the most boring of the most boring, the top 52 or 48 or whatever it was, and we picked the most boring headline in America that year. And the headline was Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. <laughs> and, and I realized when I was in the middle of writing Flash Boys, I was writing a book about a worthwhile Canadian initiative. You're writing a book about Dudley Do-Right. Dudley Do-Right. This guy is perfect. This guy is, he's, per, he's, he's, um, I tried so hard to find flaws. I, I, went, I went and lived his life in Canada. I went and dug up his childhood friends. I, I was looking, I lusted for something that was kind of wrong with this guy. And there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And since the book come, has come out, nothing has come up. He is exactly who I described him. His problem is he's a good man, he's a decent man in an indecent situation. And his blood pressure is exploding. I don't know how long he's going to live. Uh, but he's... Uh, but he is a, a truly admirable, decent person. And that's hard to describe. I mean, that's really hard to make. It's hard material. And uh, my editor came the first few times I tried to pin him to the page to like introduce him as a character. It came back to me with a note from my editor at W.W. W. Norton saying, try again. Uh, this, just, this guy's just unbelievable. It's not believable. Uh, so, I, I wouldn't write a sequel to this guy's eyes until he develops a personality disorder. Of yeah, some that's kind. exactly. This is exactly true. Uh, now, um, but there was all kinds of stuff. You know, I went looking for. I, I'm actually, I'm not going to bore the audience with this because it's just more worthwhile Canadian initiative stuff. But he's. <laughs> but uh, so the challenge, the the book, the challenge the book presented, was that I did not have an obviously colorful character, but I did have. A, an interest, a character in a really interesting situation. Someone who thought the world was basically good and sane, who finds himself in a market that's basically gotten warped and insane, and trying to figure out how that happened. And then, you know, so like so much of, so much of, so many problems that occur in the financial system um, of late uh, arise out of the complexity of the system, and arise in part because the people who are on the inside, who have the ability to see the problem, the minute they see the problem, they see they can make a bunch of money exploiting the problem. Um, and this was true, this describes uh, the, the financial crisis, but it also describes what's happened in the stock market. And what was really interesting about him was when he found what was going on, on what was going on in the stock market. And what he found, it, very broad strokes. So to, the, the, what happens to him, what, what he realizes is in 2008, he's been, the, he's been the head trader at the Royal Bank of Canada. He's managing big stock market trades. Customer comes in, they want to sell, you know, some mutual fund wants to sell uh, 100,000 shares of Microsoft. And there aren't 100,000 shares bid for in the market. His, Brad Katsuyama's job is to, is to buy this stock and, and take the risk of unloading it on the market. So he needs to know what the market is. Uh, he needs to know. He has the screens that tell him in the public exchanges there are 25,000 shares bid for Microsoft at $25 a share. So he has a sense of the risk he's taking when he buys the 100,000 shares from the mutual fund. 
what, ha- what, he, what happens is, in starting in 2008, the, the markets on the screen cease to be the markets he's dealing in. The minute he goes to act in the markets, um, it's like someone out there knows what he's trying to do, and the markets change. So, and this is like something that a lot of traders experienced in the stock markets at this time. And so what was happening is they were being front-run. I mean, it's, we can get into this, how, the, how, it was being, how it's being done, but basically there, are, there were high-frequency traders who were able to divine that he had an appetite to buy or sell, and they would run in front of him, and they would take the 25,000, hit the bid for the, the 25,000 Microsoft that were there and drive the market away from him. So he had to figure out why this was happening and how this was happening. And his journey is... Um, it's a, I mean, he can't explain to you how it all works. But the thing that made him interesting as a character was that once he figures out how this market works, he very easily could have joined the people who were making a lot of money from the flaws in the market. Instead, he decides he's going to try to fix the problem at great personal cost to himself, um, at great expense to himself. Uh, so... This is what I wanted to describe, the character who jumped that way instead of the normal way. Because I do think that a lot, as I was about to say, that a lot, a lot of the problems on Wall Street now are the result of people, when they see the problem, thinking that this is an opportunity to exploit instead of a problem to fix. And he brought with him this kind of basic decency. He, you know, what's left of Midwestern American values is in Canada. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we're re-importing it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's so, so he's, um, uh, the point, that the reason I wanted to tell the story is I thought, you know, this is what we need, this is what the market needs. That it's, it's clearly beyond, it's, gotten, it's beyond regulators, it's beyond the political process. What it needs is a, like a values, a sense that it's, you know, that this financial system serves a purpose. It doesn't function unless people trust it. People won't trust it unless it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy if people behave in trustworthy fashion, and he's showing you how you do that. Um, he's a more, it's a all very old-fashioned tale. He's this moral example. Now, it's riveting about him. Um, What's actually interesting about him is that when you put a character like that in that environment, he starts to influence other people. He, he attracts to himself people who have a sense that, yeah, maybe what they're doing is not quite right. Or maybe there's, maybe like there's a more purpose in the world than doing what they were doing. And his sense of purpose actually draws to him people who, who want to feel good about what they're doing for a living. Um, and that's what's happened. I mean, he's inundated with resumes from young people. And I think this is the way forward. I think that this is the best hope for reform on Wall Street, is kind of market-based reform led by people who are leaders, who are like setting, setting, setting an example. Let's talk about the big short. Uh, I think it explained the, the cause of the 08 financial crisis better than anything written so far and, and funnier than anything that ever will be written. You start shooting the movie soon in your hometown of New Orleans. In two weeks. How's that going? Well, so this is, um, if, the, um, my movie career, such as it is, uh, has so little to do with me. It's like watching a series of natural disasters. Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any control of, over whether movies get made or how they get made or why they get made. 
And uh, until very recently, I just assumed they didn't get made. Everything I wrote would get bought by someone who'd say that they were going to make the movie, and then the movies just would not happen. But since The Blind Side, they've started, they've just kind of started to happen. And the big short, but I didn't expect, I really didn't expect the big short or any of these financial things to be turned into movies because there's no real proven market for them. Um, and it's complicated material. Uh, Adam McKay, the Second City graduate, is a genius. Um, his, his talent that he's exhibited so far is for very broad comedies. I mean, I think Talladega Nights is, a, this is the third time I mentioned it in the course of 30 minutes. It's obviously a big influence on my life. But I think it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's a work of genius. Um, the, he, what he's written is not a broad comedy. It's funny and really interesting, but it's a serious movie. And he's managed, and he did it with such conviction. He cared a lot about this. It really bothered him, like it bothered a lot of people that this stuff happened during the financial crisis and no one was really ever held accountable. Uh, really bothered him. And you can see it between every line on the page. And you pick up and you read the script, and this is, it's a work of conviction. It's not preachy, but it's a work of there's conviction there. And he's attracted to this, and that kind of script attracts to it talent who sense it. So he's got Christian Bale, Brad Pitt, Steve Carell, and Ryan Gosling in, in his movie. And he has people lined up who want to be in it. I mean, there aren't room. There's not room for everybody. But it, and they're all doing it for not very much money. They're all doing it at huge pay cuts because the studio actually doesn't particularly want to make the movie. I mean, so what, so what Adam McKay told me nine months ago was um, basically that the studio wanted him to do Anchorman 19, you know, whatever. I don't know where they are, right? And he said he would only do Anchorman 19 if they let him make the big short. So it is a passion project. And they, but they won't give him a bunch of money. So it's being made on a shoestring, and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be so good. Uh, I, I have no doubts about it. And this is just a stroke of luck because I have nothing to do with it. I mean, it's, I watch this with the blind side, and I watch this with, with Moneyball, that, that the that not only do I not have anything to do with it, the movie people don't, really don't want me to have anything to do with it. They, they, their favorite author is a dead author. Uh, because because I mean, you can't, and you can't blame them, right? You can't blame them because a dead author does not run around saying they ruined my work of art and, and, uh, and want to drag his friends to the set and all that. A dead author is an extremely easy person to deal with. The, so they, but so they, but when they so when they're stuck with this inconvenience of having me alive, uh, what they what they do it's very, it's been fu it's funny they do this dance where they they go out of their way to seem like they're extremely interested in my every thought in how they make my the movie of my book without giving a rat's ass about it and and. So we do, we've done, Adam McKay and I have already done this dance, where we sat down and seriously discussed how he might do the movie. And he didn't listen to anything I said. And thank God, thank God, because they, he knows what he's doing. Um, but the, the, it seems to be going great. The best indication I have that it's going great is he now, he never calls. Uh, I mean, that he really doesn't need me at all anymore. I mean, I think that it's got this momentum to it. And it's, I think it's be out in the fall. I mean, I think that's when they planned to release it. I can't wait to see it. Let's talk about Obama's Way, your article for Vanity Fair. 
You were embedded with President Obama for eight months prior to his re-election. You hung out at the White House on Air Force One at his weekly basketball game at the FBI building. What was the president thinking when he invited the country's top satirist <laughs> into his tent? So I'll tell you how it happened because it was quixotic. Um, I had finished, I can't remember what. It might have been the last piece of Boomerang. I don't even know what, it, what I was working on at the time. But I have, the, it's the, my favorite time as a writer is when I'm, I don't have anything, I, when, I owe, when I don't owe anything to anybody. And I can just think, what, if, I was, if I wasn't doing this, I always have this thought. If I wasn't doing this for a living, what would I do? Should I still be doing this for a living? I think it's really healthy to sort of like, maybe I should stop writing, ask that no. question. Well, you never, at some point, the answer may be yes. But to ask that question every now and then. So, and then the second question I ask myself, if I can write about anything, what would it be? Because I, I have a clean slate right now. I don't, know, I don't have to, I have no obligations. And I'd had a couple of glasses of wine one night, and I thought, I think I want to, I want to write about what it's like to be president. And, and the way I do that is I want to go hang out with Obama. And uh, I, had no, I had no prior relationship with Obama. I, I did not join the religious movement that was his campaign, which I, I voted for him, but, but I didn't. I like, it was always from a little bit of a distance. Because maybe I was, because I was surrounded by people who were so rabidly for him that my natural reaction was to back away a little bit. Um, but so one night, I got a hold through Walter Isaacson, president of the institute. I, I wrote, I figured Walter must know Obama. And I, so I, I, I sent him and I said, how do I get a note to, I said, to Jay Carney, who's, who is Obama's press person at the time. And he just sent, Walter sent me right away Jay Carney's email address. So I wrote Jay Carney this email saying, I know this sounds crazy, but I want to come hang around with Obama and write a piece about what it's like to be president. And I sent them I sent, I attached to, to it one of my favorite pieces of political journalism. Um, it was a piece in the New Yorker in the 1950s by John Hersey, who wrote the, um, his most famous thing is Hiroshima. The, the, this, he went in and did wonderful reporting after, the, after the, we dropped bombs on Japan. And, um, he, but he did this series about Harry Truman. Uh, and it was, he did just this. He went and hung out with Harry Truman. And the the first piece in that series, it opens with Truman was in the process of tearing up the White House to build the Truman balcony, among other things. And he was living in Blair House, basically across the street. And, and it opens with Hersey knocking on the door of Blair House, being led in by the Trumans, going for a walk in the wee hours of the morning with, along the Potomac with this him and Harry Truman, and ending up in a sauna naked together. And I said, this is the kind of access I want. <laughs> Uh, and, it, and, and it was a very kind of pushy note in the sense because I said, I really want to do this. I think the world would benefit from like seeing what it, giving a sense of what it feels like to be in the president's shoes when he's making decisions. Um, but he, we can't do this unless he wants to really give me this kind of access. There's no point. And then I went to bed. And I woke up the next morning and went, I can't believe I wrote that email kind of thing. And, but waiting for me was an email back. And it was from Jay Carney saying, call me. And I called him. He said, you know, we might really want to do this. And I said, who, who, who might really want to do this? And he said, he might really want, he really wants to do this. Obama wants to do this. And I said, well, how does everybody else at the White House feel about it? He says, we really don't want to do this. <laughs> so, so this got driven entirely by Obama 
entirely about it. Jay, Jay liked the idea of it, but nobody else. They really didn't like the idea of it. And so I went to the White House to be vetted, basically, by the people around Obama, all the, the, the important lieutenants. And it felt like a Goldman Sachs job interview. You go from partner to partner, and, you, and, and it went on for a whole day. And at the end of the thing, uh, I was five minutes into an interview with his, his uh, congressional liaison, and a, a staffer from the press office rushed in and shouted, Michael, you gotta, we, you gotta leave, this interview's over. And I thought, oh my God, either I've offended them or something really horrible's happened in the world. She grabs me and I follow her through that rabbit warren of the White House and she opens the door and I'm in the Oval Office and Obama's waiting for me. And he's la he was, actually it was kind of funny, he was, sitting, he was sitting there reading an email that had just been handed by his secretary. And, the, and he says, uh, you wanna know what my life is like? Because he knew what I, what I was after. He says, here, look at this. And it was an email from a parent at the Sidwell Friends School where his kids go to school. And um, he was in the, he at the time was coaching both his daughters in basketball. And I can't remember, we'd say one was in the ninth grade and one was in the seventh grade, but so let's say that was the, the year. And he was always so coaching the ninth grade basket, girls basketball team and the seventh grade girls basketball team. This was a letter from the parent of an eighth grader, outraged that the president wasn't also coaching the eighth grade girl team. And how incredibly unfair it was. That, that he was doing this, and how did he kind of go, how did he, how did he live with himself? And um, so we sat down, we talked just like this in those chairs where he, you know, he, he and world leaders sit when they die. And, uh, and uh, he was, and it was just chatty. It was, he's very easy in person, he's very easy. There's not a, normally when you're with a political person, um, someone who's run for elected office, you generally sense the, the filter. Um, you, two things, actually. You sense they are expert flatterers, that they, 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 they're looking to get a hook in you in some way, they want to and they want to feel your approval at the same time. They want that connection. Clinton is, of course, the pathological example of it, but, but he's, just the, he's just the extreme case, right? He's just the best at it. The, the, most of the others want to be Clinton. And... Uh, <laughs> And the, the thing about Obama that was so interesting, he doesn't want to be Clinton. He really doesn't. He's, he wants, he's just, he doesn't, not only, it's almost like he doesn't really care whether you even like him. He, but he wants it to be real he, he, instead. And so, for example, um, in that course of that hour, I left not having the first clue that he had, that, that he, that he had read a word I'd ever written. I had to be told afterwards that he read several of the books and was really interested in them. But the only thing he said about anything I'd ever done was he said, the Moneyball movie, he said, you didn't have anything to do with that, did you? And I said, no. He says, I didn't think so. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. That was the only reference to any other work. And, uh, and there, uh, uh, there was no um, neediness from him. It was just like talking. And it was refreshing. So... Uh, I instantly, I came away from that thinking, if he wants to do this, that's a character I can totally work with. Uh, I did a, the piece was a little piece. I mean, it was a long piece, but it was just a, it was a magazine piece. The truth is, I, my ambition is to do a book, and I'm hoping to go back uh, next year and do the, the same thing at, in a much longer, more detailed kind of way. And I want to write a book about, what I want to write a book about is presidential decision-making. Pick five decisions and put the reader in his shoes and use that frame to get across what, what he, who he is and what it's like to be him. And I, I still think, because in part because of how screwed up our media is, there's still fresh stories to tell. 
I mean, it's unbelievable, but I think it's, it's, you can still, it could still be written in a way where a reader would actually think, God, you know, I never thought about it this way before. You know, this, is, this guy is actually sitting there. He's doing his best in very trying circumstances to try to kind of make the right decision. He's not, he knows he's going to be wrong a lot of the time. How does he function? What does he do? How does he think about it? How does he monitor himself, the kind of meta decision thing? How does he watch? How does he monitor himself making the decision? Um, so uh, the, the material to me still feels compelling and fresh. Um, the magazine piece was what the magazine piece was, but it was, it was a total pleasure to do. We got to get to uh, audience questions, but I, I just want to ask you about Boomerang because it's topical. Um, in my opinion, it was your funniest book since Liar's Poker. And you explore how five countries' cultures determine their reaction to the pinata of easy money that led to your sovereign debt crisis. You wrote that the Greeks are, quote, a nation of people looking for anyone to blame but themselves, and that the Germans are super anal, uh, obsessed with feces, in fact. <laughs> now the Greeks are fighting the Germans for their economic survival. So what's going to happen, and what do you think should happen? I don't happen? understand. The, the Greeks keep trying to give the Germans their shit, and I don't understand why the Germans don't take it. <laughs> I mean, it's a natural. There's a synergy there. Uh, um, the, that material was, again, it's a series of magazine pieces. I was put up to it by my editor, Doug Stumpf, at Vanity Fair. And, but, I, but my interest in it, and my, my interest in it was slightly different than his. In the beginning, I can remember what set, this, set us off. What set us off was Iceland. That's how it started, that, that series. It was, that was the low-hanging fruit, and it was, so, it was so, such a pleasure to write about, to pluck, that we thought, where is, is there more fruit here? But the, the premise, which lasted through to the end was so we had this very weird period where the financial markets lost their mind and didn't make any kind of credit judgments about the countries they just they they, they there was free money available for all but each society behaved differently in the presence of the free money it was that you're alone in a room with a pile of money what do you want to do with it it's financial porn and uh and and it, and the kinks were different in Ireland, from and then, then they were in Greece, then they were in Iceland, and they exposed it was what it was is a tra it was tourism. It's, these are travel. This is travel journalism. It's sort of getting at the society through its relationship with money, um, and it was it, it was uh, you saw that there's this cultural dimension to the whole thing. That Iceland was so Iceland was my favorite, still my favorite because it was so stark. It's a nation of. 300,000 people. It's the size of Peoria. And they had three global banks. I mean, they, in a matter of a few years, they, they, three of the biggest banks in the world in Peoria, Illinois. And, and Iceland, the, the president of Iceland was touring the world, giving speeches to people about how Icelanders had been oppressed for centuries and had never been able to show that they had a particular gift in finance. And now that they were able to, now that they were, now that the, now that the constraints were being removed, um, they could show that they actually had this natural gift for risk-taking. But it wasn't all Icelanders. It was just Icelandic males. The women had no pretenses that they knew anything about finance. The men told the women that we know what we're doing. 
And these are fishermen. These are fishermen. They were literally fishermen. That, that's, what, that's what people do. That's what they had done in Iceland up to the moment they were given money to become bankers. They were fishermen. And if you're given a choice between being a fisherman and being a banker, it's not a hard choice. You stop fishing. And, and uh, I interviewed, I mean, I interviewed people who had literally come off the boat and the next day were given portfolios to trade foreign exchange. And they all said it, you know, the, guy, the one guy who, was, who I talked to who had, I mean, he really had literally walked off the boat and started trading a, a, for one of the banks in the foreign exchange markets. He said how much easier it was than fishing. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the effect of uh, this, the, and the, so the Icelandic males, because of the nature of the work in part, had historically been, they'd done the fishing. And the, their the women, Icelandic females, trusted that the men, the men always know, they always knew what they were doing. They were really good fishermen. When the men come home and say, now I really am going to be a banker and I really know how to do this too, they said, basically, okay. By the time I get there, there is one viable financial institution in the whole country, and it is an investment advisory firm run by an Icelandic woman. And the premise of it is, no man will ever touch your money. That it, if, you, if you give your money, if you, if you want your money managed by, without any Icelandic men ever getting near it, this is the place. And Icelandic men were giving her their money because it was like, I, stop me before I trade again. And, and, and this was, but it, you could get to, so you could get to some deep truths about the financial world through this one little story. Um, one deep truth, I mean, there's now research. There's a paper written by a Berkeley economist named Terry, Terry O'Dean. It's fabulous, called Boys Will Be Boys. He got a hold of all the E-Trade account data. This was year, some years ago, five, ten, ten years ago, um, and showed that the, uh, the, the vice that the American investor makes is he trades too much. That it's just like too much activity. It gets eaten up by, the, they get, the, the returns get eaten up by commissions. And the activity is a result of actually the person who's doing the training thinking they know something. Like, it's smart to sell that and buy that. So what he, what he shows in his paper, Boys Will Be Boys, is that um, the E-Trade accounts that were the worst managed were in households where there was just a man, where a single man. The next worst were where there was a married couple. And the absolute best managed accounts were when there was just a single woman in the house. And so Iceland was this writ large. It was like, and, and he get, his hypothesis is male overconfidence, that at the bottom of the problem is male overconfidence. And the Icelandic male is particularly overconfident. I mean, he really is. You, it doesn't take long to figure this out when you're there. They really are like, they are, um, I mean, it, when you walk down the street in Iceland, I've never had this experience anywhere else. The men, just the men, when they're coming at you, if you don't get out of the way, they run you over. It's like you're constantly, essentially, in mortal combat with a horned ram who is just looking to butt something. And the Iceland men, they just butt it up against the financial markets. Michael, I'm getting in big trouble because we're behind and we're supposed to go to audience questions. Um, can you give us an update on Brad's stock market exchange and let us know how it's been going since he started it? Um, so the exchange, and everybody should pay attention to this exchange because 
it's, it's the uh, business embodiment of the Brad Kasiyama values on, on, in, the mar- in the stock market. It's called IEX, the Investors Exchange. And I think it's true to say it's the fastest growing exchange that's ever been created. Uh, it's, it's got, it doesn't sound like much. He, they, they have a, a little more than 1% of the volume of the U.S. stock market right now. But there are, it already makes them profitable. Um, they are not even a full fledged they're a dark pool, they're a private exchange. They become a public exchange in the fall, at, at which time, for reasons not worth going into, their volume is going to grow a lot. They have raised $75 million of venture capital uh, from big-time venture capitalists to grow the place. They have all kinds of talented people who want to work for them. Um, and they have some of the biggest investors in the world now behind them. Uh, and it, so it feels like a force. And the question is then what happens if it grows? I mean, I, th- I guess that the market can kind of ignore them at 1%. And the, but the interesting thing about them, all right, so there, it, what's cl- become clear is there are a kind of litmus test in the market that if what they do is they remove the advantage that high-frequency traders, the speed advantage that high-frequency traders have over ordinary investors. And they're the only venue that does this. Um, in the rest of the U.S. stock market, high-frequency traders uh, account for about 50% of the volume. About half the trades are done. So they're, it's, the, the typical encounter in the market is an ordinary investor colliding with a high-frequency trader. When you remove the advantage that they have, they're on, the, on Brad Katsuyama's market, they're about 17% of the market. So they serve some function still, but it's much, they, they're much less necessary. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't have anything to do when they can't exploit people. Um, so they are, have much less to do when they can't exploit people. Um, and he's showing this. And the big investors, I mean, I'm talking about rich people, I'm talking about big, giant mutual funds, are starting to quantify the benefits they are experiencing not being exploited when they trade on IEX. And the number, I, I was just walked through some numbers with one of them uh, a couple of months ago. It was a third of a percent, which is, doesn't sound like much, but it's actually, when you, I mean, this, is a, this was a company that trades $80 billion of stock every year. They're looking at a $240 million gain uh, to, for their investors. And their investors are, you know, firefighters and teachers and unions and so on, it's meaningful. So once you start to show it, the effect of it, you create pressure in the market. You, investors all of a sudden look remiss if they aren't forcing the orders there instead of there. So I think it looks very, the, the future looks very rosy for them. And then the question is, what happens when they get up to a certain size, when they become totally unignorable? Before I wrote the book, the New York Stock Exchange tried to buy them. And they, 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 they um, avoided, they, they didn't, IX didn't want to sell because they were afraid, rightly, that if they got bought, bought by the New York Stock Exchange, essentially they'd be being bought to be silenced. But if they get to a certain size, it would not surprise me if they became the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, what this market really wants to do is be in one place. Right now it's in 60 places. There are 13 or a dozen public exchanges and 40-something dark pools, and they're scattered across New Jersey. It, does, it serves investors no purpose to have this fragmentation. If there is one trustworthy place where everybody can meet, that's the natural structure, the, the most efficient structure for the market. And I think they're going to force that question at some point. Why don't we just have one place, and why aren't they the place? Um, we got to force some more questions right, from sorry. the audience. 
Do you think that the high-frequency traders could become specialists on this market? Do I think they should become specialists on the market? Oh, I, you know, I don't think... That's before your day. It's all right. No, 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 I know. The specialists on the floor of the exchange back when human beings, actually, we were in the middle of the transactions. So now, I mean, there aren't any... When you go to buy or sell a stock, it's not, there's not a person you're dealing with. You're dealing with, with algorithms. And um, removing the people from the market was a really good thing. I mean, it, it wasn't that the old system was so great. It's just that what replaced it should have been much better. Um, so no, I don't think, and I don't think there's any chance, it seems highly unlikely that it will return to a day when the trades are being slowed to human, sort of human speed, when specialists are necessary. So I, I think that what's much more likely is that there'll be many fewer high-frequency traders. Uh, there will be some who serve some purpose, and there'll be others will just be out of business. This is inefficient. We have two microphones racing for the same person. <laughs> All right. Carolyn, one. Michael, I'm curious. Um, why didn't you talk about BATS being started by a high-frequency high trading firm more in the book? And why didn't you talk about any of the high-frequency trader characters? Because those people are more colorful. Um, so I made a decision pretty early. And it was partly based on my experience of the response to the big short, that if I picked one, if I picked someone out of what was a systemic problem, and it is a systemic problem, it's not, the high-frequency trades are not the, the villains or the only villains of this piece. The exchanges have abdicated their responsibility to provide a fair place for people to trade. The brokers, online brokers and the banks that handle the stock market orders have sold out their customers. Um, if I picked one, if I picked bats, it's a natural one to pick, but if I picked or one high-frequency trader who happened to be fool enough to talk to me, um, all the energy would be focused on them as opposed to the system. And the truth of the story of Brad Katsuyama, the story I was telling, it wasn't man versus high-frequency trader. It was man versus system. So I, I decided right up early on to leave the system faceless, which had literary disadvantages, but it was, it was a truth to that. So it, the decision was intentional. Uh, I didn't want to pick one because I knew what was going to happen if I picked one. It was going to be, they're a villain, get them, and then the problem's fixed. But the problem wouldn't be fixed. The problem's the system. When you got into the book, um, Flash Boys, did you have a motivation that you disclosing some of the things that were going on with high-frequency trading we're going to be looked at by regulators. Was there kind of an underlying theme that I hope somebody really pulls back, opens the kimono here and really goes after some of these guys or really tries to uh, assess whether this is right or wrong? When the big short came out, I started to get calls from senators, lots of senators, basically saying, um, You've explained to me how our financial system works. Can you come into my office so we can talk some more? And my response was always, you're out of your mind. I, you're counting on me to explain to you how this hall works? I've got these characters who know a lot of stuff, but everything I know is in there kind of thing. And don't, I don't know much more beyond that. Um, I've always, I, I, that was the first taste I had of being taken really seriously by the politically, political slash regulatory process. 
And the first inkling I got how clueless it was, and it was really disturbing. So I was aware, because of that book, that a book could start to inform really important people who should already know what was in the book. Um, so I was not oblivious to the possibility that Flash Boys was going to have the effect it did, although I, there was no way I could imagine. I mean, it was so explosive when it came out, but why was it explosive? It wasn't because me. I mean, it was because this guy, this decent Canadian guy, had figured out how it all worked and made it comprehensible. So I, I, knew, I knew that um, if I just connected up him with our, with our political regulatory structure, the effect would be explosive because he could teach them in a way that was so credible and irrefutable, in a way that I couldn't. And so that's what happened. It wasn't... Um, the New York Attorney General, the Justice Department, the FBI, various senators, um, a lot of these lawsuits, they're getting their information from him or his group, uh, not from me. So I, I knew he was explosive. I knew, and, I, and you know, I, it wasn't that hard to see because he had walked into the offices of some of the most famous investors in this country and explained to them what they couldn't understand, which was why whenever they put an order in the stock market, the market moved before they even put the order in kind of thing. How do people know what they were going to try to do? They, they had seen the problem. They had sensed it, but they'd know it, they, had, they didn't understand why it was happening. And they were outraged, and they were, they were in the dark until he explained it to them. So I just knew that, the, the, that his, his story had, was wonderfully clarifying for people who had only kind of a vague sense of how all this machinery worked, and that it was potentially explosive. Um, this is going to have to be the last question. Can, can, uh, can you talk a bit about the method of how you put together your stories, and specifically how you navigate ground rules? I mean, your books are amazing in part because they convey these amazing characters in really personal ways. And so it strikes the reader did you have to confront ground rules that they say this is off limits? How, has that come up? So, and how do you manage it? So it's always the same. Um, even with Obama, it was the same. Uh, the with the one little wrinkle, the White House dealing with the White House was slightly different from anyone else I've dealt with. But I, I say to them, with the people who are going to who who end up being the story I'm telling, I've got to move into their lives. It's very intrusive. They've got to be able to say to me at some point, if I happen to be there in a really uncomfortable time, that we can let you stay, but you know it's off the record. Or I, or they can, you can. I have, they have to be able to say things to me that I can, that will be off the record. Would, and I say that right up front. Just talk to me in the very beginning when I start with them. I don't even take notes. I, I need to, I need to understand their, their world as they understand it. And if they're worried about how it's going to sound, it's, it's pointless. So there's a long period of kind of getting to know and getting them getting to know me and trust me up to a point. Um, they never totally trust me, but they trust me up to a point. Uh, and they shouldn't completely trust me. Um, the, um, after that, it's my book. So they don't see it until you see it. And this causes a shock. I mean, I can, I mean, every character, I've heard, I, the silence on the other end of the phone, I've come to recognize. Uh, and it's, it's a silence where they just don't want to, we have, because we have this relationship, they don't want to be screaming at me on the phone. But um, there's a, 
you know, when you, when you first heard your, your voice on a tape recorder and it didn't sound like you, that's what it feels like to be written about. Um, it just feels, wait, I'm that way. Billy Bean in Moneyball, when, when he got Moneyball, he called me and he didn't want to scream at me, but he was just, he just, he wasn't making any sense. It was, what came out of his mouth was basically, that's what it sounded like. And I said, well, why are you up, what are you upset about? He says, you have me saying fuck all the time. I said, BC Walker watches South Park, so it's okay. And he said, and so, so he said, I said, I said, but you do say fuck all the time. He says, yeah, but you don't know how, how angry my mother is going to be when she reads this. That was his, that was, and he was really upset about it. So they, they, they have no control over what I write, none. But they necessarily exert a great deal of influence because they know they're, you know, I'm writing, I mean, they're giving me my story. Um, the Obama thing was funny because the White House said, presidential speech is just different from other kinds of speech. And if it's in quotations, we need to see it. And so I allowed them to see the stuff that was in quotations. It was actually not giving them all that much power uh, because I could have just taken it out of quotations that Obama says uh, without the quotes. Um, and I was prepared to do it. But they didn't require me to do it. They didn't change a thing. So... Um, uh, it's, it's, um, there's a level of trust that has to be built up over a long period of time. And at some point, what always happens is they realize I'm, they're in too deep, that I've seen too much already, that there's just no point in faking it. And this, so they kind of vomit their life out. And they let me pick, pick through the, the stuff. And, uh, and hope I'll figure it out in a kind of basically honest way. That's how it works. Thanks so much for coming, everybody. That was author Michael Lewis, recorded live at Aspen Words on March 12, 2015. Aspen Words is a nonprofit literary organization and program of the Aspen Institute that hosts the world's most prominent contemporary authors. Its mission is to encourage writers, inspire readers, and connect people through the power of stories. For more information and to learn how you can participate, visit aspenwords.org. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.